Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another edition of our Monday morning devotionals, working through the F260 Bible reading plan. We are in the book of Acts, watching the expansion of God's church grow after the events of the gospel, which we have been in uh, for the previous couple months. And so I'm going to jump right into it today because there's a lot going on in our text, uh, a lot of which is exciting. I had an enjoyable time this morning in God's Word. I hope if you had time um, to be in it already that it was rewarding for you as well. But I will start with an introduction and just kind of summary of what we see today. So we are in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11. And uh, big picture here is we're seeing the church expand as a result of God's promise. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But we are seeing um, the gospel uh, kind of expand from just Jesus' followers. We saw it at Pentecost expand to the Jews, um, uh, to Jews from other countries. Uh, we saw it uh, kind of expand even remarkably so under the persecution of Saul. And then, then God reached into Saul's life and saved his heart in Acts chapter 9. Uh, and now the church is expanding all the more. But the nature of its expansion is really important. It's actually going to be a point of contention in the church as we continue to follow along in the book of Acts. Uh, God's promises are always bigger than we ever imagined. And that's one thing that can often trip us up uh, is when we try to put God in a box and the extent of his salvation and the beauty of his His name and the uh, motivation he gives us in life. If we ever try to confine that um we're going to stumble over ourselves. And there's Peter has a great line in here um, that we'll look at in a little bit, which uh, is one that really stood out to me today. And so what we see, Acts 10, um, we read about a, in Caesarea, Acts 10, one, a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. So what we know about uh, Cornelius is that he was not a Jew. He is a Gentile, Jews being God's ethnic people, Gentiles just being ethnos in Greek, kind of just non-Jews, ethnic people who are not Jews. Um, and yet he was a devout man who feared God. And so we're going to see in the book of Acts this theme of um, devout people or God-fearers. And uh, just to bring some clarity, uh, when they're talking about uh, God-fearers, people who fear God, they're generally talking about people who were relating to God in... Um, kind of the Jewish way of, of following God and wanting to please God as he revealed himself in the Old Testament scriptures. They're kind of Jewish converts who loved God, um, but they hadn't yet heard God's fullness of salvation in Jesus Christ. And so it's not that these people were pagan um, or believed in God a little bit, but not enough. It's that they hadn't yet heard the good news of God's promise being fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And later on, we're going to see that. And when that happens, it's going to happen numerous times to different people groups in the book of Acts. These God-fearers realize that it's Jesus that brings them to back to God. They hear the gospel, they repent, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we run into God-fear. Um, we, we shouldn't be nasal-gazing and wondering, man, do we believe the right things about God? We just want to ask ourselves, do we believe that God has displayed himself in the right place? And that is through the cross uh, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that's what separates us from people who know God and people who are saved by God um, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he he knows God, he fears God, he was very generous to God's people, um, and God appears to Cornelius in a vision, and he says, hey, send for um, Simon. It's funny, he's almost like, Simon, not that Simon, this Simon, right? There's Simon called Peter, and he's lodging with Simon the Tanner. Uh, and then the next day... Uh, as Cornelius' servants were approaching uh, where Peter was, uh, Peter has a vision. And it's funny because uh, the, 
the Luke, the author of Acts, says Peter was very hungry. And why is that important? Because when he went up to pray, God lowers down the most beautiful cosmic barbecue uh, on this sheet you could ever see. On it, there's all sorts of reptiles. Uh, there are, um, where am I looking? I read in a different Bible today, so I'm trying to find uh, where it was here. Uh, all kinds of animals, reptiles, and birds of the air. And there came a voice that said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. What he's saying there is the Old Testament dietary laws um, prohibited uh, what it was that a god fear, a Jew, uh, a god follower could eat. And um, here, God says to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times, uh, this dialogue between Peter and God, uh, which is funny. Peter's wonderfully consistent with himself. He is, even after seeing the resurrected Jesus, and here's this sheet descending before him, uh, he still argues with him three times. And how gracious is God to do that with our hearts. Uh, now, while Peter was contemplating what this vision was, these men from Cornelius show up and they say, hey, we have this master named Cornelius who had a vision from an angel and said, hey, Peter, can you come and visit us? And so Peter goes with the servants to Caesarea where Cornelius was and Cornelius begins to worship Peter. Um, and Peter says, stand up. I'm a man too. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of any other nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And so here, Peter, we'll talk about this in a little bit. Peter now realizes that his vision has said that not just food is unclean uh, or, or that food is no longer unclean, but there are no longer unclean people groups, that it's not a problem for Jews to associate with Gentiles. And then Cornelius explains the vision to Peter. And then Peter opens his mouth um, in verse, uh, P Cornelius says this after he shares his vision in verse 33, he says, so I went sent for you, Peter, at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And Peter opens his mouth in verse 34, and he says this, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And then he begins this uh, historic presentation of how God has related to his people in Israel, and then he transitions to this proclamation of the gospel. And so that's going to be in verses 36 through 43, um, and it culminates with this gospel call that to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness through his name and when god says everyone what does he mean well he means certainly jews and gentiles because verse 44 while peter was still saying these things the holy spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among all the circumcised who came with peter were amazed because the gift of the holy spirit was poured out even on the gentiles god's promise is growing and expanding and then uh, we see that uh, the apostles were hearing about what was going on with the Gentiles and they're wondering, is this legit? Are we allowed to uh, fraternize with Gentiles? Is this gospel of Christ, the Jewish Messiah coming to die for our sins, is this also for other people or is it just for Jews? And Peter, um, it's funny because after this, he says in verse uh, 11, verse 18, he's like, well, it's a long story. And so he explains all these corresponding visions, what we just read in Acts chapter 10, to answer their question like, yes, this is the work of the Lord. And then at the end, they stand amazed and they say um, they worship God at the way in which the Gentiles are being saved. And at the end, we just see the kind of this little aside 
now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. And so persecution is fanning the church um, in an effort to stop the church. The church is being pushed out and saving more people outside the realm of Jerusalem. And most of those people are going just to Jews. But we read, there were some men, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists and also preached that the, that the Lord is Jesus. And so they're going to uh, Greek Roman minded people and they're preaching the gospel. It's not just for the Jews. The gospel is going out. And then we see this famine that's being predicted at the end and the saints are going to provide for the church in the saints in Antioch are going to provide for this, the church in Jerusalem. So that's the summary. Um, and so what we do with this is we're going to look three places. We're going to look up, we're going to look in, we're going to look out. So looking up, uh, one thing that I think is unique is that we see that God's revelation is always relevant. God's revelation is always relevant. And here we see this because God simultaneously is going to Cornelius, uh, giving him very little information besides he's to call for Peter. And he's going to Peter, giving him this weird vision of a picnic descending and saying, eat. Um, and we see this in uh, verses 9 through 16 is where we see this vision happening with Peter. And what's interesting is neither Peter nor Cornelius really know what's going on. And yet God is speaking to them. And when we read God's word, it's not through this ecstatic divine vision that's coming down, but we are reading God's very word to us, God's revelation. As Christians, we worship a God who delights to reveal himself to us and does so through his scriptures. And sometimes when we encounter God's word, probably like Peter or probably like Cornelius, we're like, what do we do with this? And there are two things we could do when we understand that is we, is we could say, no, nah, I don't understand it. I don't get it. Um, I'm just going to get on with my day. But what I love is we see, um, even though Peter is kind of arguing back and forth with God in this, um, verse uh, 17 says this, Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision might mean, we also see this in verse 19, And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, And so Peter doesn't fully know what's going on, but he refuses to say that this revelation was irrelevant. He forces himself to think on it, um, to ponder. His day begins to go on and he's still considering um, what is being spoken. And then all of a sudden it clicks later on in the passage, right? Um, in verse 28, Cornelius and Peter are united and Cornelius says, uh, here we are, we're together. And, and Peter says this, he says, um, uh, God has shown me, this is verse 28 that I should not call any person common or unclean. And so uh, a couple days pass to this point, at least a day. Um, and finally, Peter gets to Cornelius. He sees this Gentile inviting him into his home with a group of friends eager to hear, right, um, what he says uh, in um, verse 34. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. And Peter says, this is it. It wasn't just about food, though God declared all food clean in the vision, but we are seeing that God is bringing in the unclean Gentiles to have fellowship with God, with the Jews. God is breaking down his barriers and it clicks for Peter. And oftentimes in our lives, when we under, when we read God's word in the morning, there might be times where we're just like, okay, I did it. I checked it off. Don't know what it means. Let's go. But if we meditate on God's word, if we uh, are committed to taking bits and pieces of what God is doing, 
um, that's going to bear fruit. It's never for naught that we hear from God. It's never for naught that we think about God's word. And so uh, this is kind of, uh, this is a freebie for looking in or looking out. Um, might we have the same kind of hope that God's revelation to us in scripture always bears fruit? It always becomes relevant at some point in life. We started the book of Proverbs at Sovereign Hope on the weekends, and Proverbs is wisdom beforehand. Um, wisdom that we see uh, and are equipped with prior to our experience so that we might know what to do when that happens. God's revelation is good news for us. And specifically, the revelation that was good news is the second thing in looking up. And we see God's promise to the nations being fulfilled, right? In verses 34 through 35, um, Peter says this, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Verse 43 says this, to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him and receives and receives forgiveness, excuse me, to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then verse 44, it says this, while Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard his word and all the believers among all the circumcised who came with Peter were amazed because of the gift of the Holy Spirit. It was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, this is the same question that Philip asked the eunuch, if you were reading the other day, can anyone withhold water for baptism from these people who have just received the Holy Spirit as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And they asked him to remain for some days. And then we saw at the end when Peter makes it clear um, to the church, it says, when they heard these things, they fell silent and glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And so here we see, uh, it might seem simple to us, something that's unfolding in six paragraphs in our word, but way back in uh, Genesis, when God makes a covenant with Abraham, beginning in Genesis chapter 12, God made a promise that his covenant, God's grace, will be a blessing to the nations. And here finally, it has broken at the seams. God's promise is, is uh, being unleashed to the nations. Gentiles, us, you and me, if you are not Jews, have access to God, not by physical birth, but by spiritual birth, by regeneration of the miracle of faith through the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's plan is moving forward. You think of how hard it is, and we're in fire season right now. We've spent a week with smoke. Uh, when a spark goes off in a forest, how hard it is to contain that. See how hard it is to contain God's plan for salvation to the nations. It is spreading like wildfire in this early church. And just how we talked about last week, we ought not to assume it's not spreading in our time today. God is doing things, and he is doing it. Why? Because God is a promise-keeping God. That is good news for us. So let's uh, transition from looking up. We see God's revelation is always relevant. We also see God's promise to the nations to save through Jesus Christ, to be a blessing to them. But when it comes to looking in, um, there's two things uh, and, and three subpoints. So uh, it, was a, it was a productive Monday morning for me. Uh, one, just quickly, we see uh, both Cornelius and Peter setting aside specific times to pray. For Cornelius, it was three in the afternoon. We see that in chapter 10, verse 2, and chapter 10, verse 30. For Peter, it was noon on the nose. And uh, I'm convicted. I don't, at, at mealtime and my devotions in the morning, um, I have time where I, I sit down to pray. But what we see is Cornelius, who at this point isn't even converted, he's just a God-fearer, is taking apart a dedicated time to say, I'm going to pray 
right now. And there's, it's not the act of praying that makes us spiritual or holy. It's not like this penance that God rewards us for. But prayer is where we relate to the God who saves us. Prayer is where we hear from the God who loves us. It's where we express our heart to him. And so I was thinking for me and perhaps for you, um, the challenge of saying, where is it that I'm actually setting aside five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes? Um, if, if you're not used to this as, as I am, uh, don't say I'm going to spend 45 minutes with God and then sit there lost in thought um, for the, the, the rest of the time. Start small. Um, and I, I heard this once um, I wish I could give credit to who it was. I can't think of who it was. But oftentimes when we sit down as a scheduled time to pray, uh, we wrestle to have focus on what it is we're praying for. Uh, but this uh, author said that, you know, follow wherever your mind gets lost to. And probably at the end of that is a prayer request. If you're thinking about um, work or kids or, or a relationship, there's probably, if you follow that to its logical end, something that needs prayer, something that needs wisdom, something you need help with. And so um, don't just beat yourself and try to focus like a monk on the white wall in front of you, but actually follow your thoughts and uh, lead, let those lead you to prayer because every aspect of our life ultimately needs God's grace. And so we see a unique emphasis by these two men of setting aside time to pray. Um, but the thing I'm most excited to talk about today are... Uh, three attributes we see this early church uh, beginning to display. And so here we see kind of the church in its fullest form because we are, and I, I'm speaking of church as the capital C church, like all those who are being called um, regardless of where they are in space and time, but we're seeing Jews be saved. We're seeing Gentiles be saved. And so it's this multi-ethnic people that God has long desired the church to be. And in this church, we see three priorities that I think are relevant for us. Those priorities are evangelism, discipleship, and generosity. We see this evangelism happening in verses 18 through 20, where because of persecution, the people are going out and they're going out and they're sharing the gospel with people, right? In chapter 19, it's just to Jews, but what are they doing? They're speaking the word. They're speaking the word of God, even though they're being persecuted for it. But not only were there people going out because of persecution, speaking the gospel to the Jews, in verse 20, some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. And so central to this church was um, an inward uh an inward reality that we saw earlier in Acts, right? Um, we, the church isn't wholly external, nor is it wholly internal, but it's uh, the gathering together house to house, devoting themselves to the, to the disciples' teachings, to the reading of the word and to the prayers and the breaking of bread. But there's also this external going out that we see here. And the church is motivated by evangelism because of the beauty of the gospel, what God is doing in his church. We also see um, discipleship as a pillar because as these people are being saved, look at what happens. Look at how the church responds to salvation. The report of this, that's the conversion of the Gentiles, came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came, he saw the grace of God. He was glad. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, or we could also be translated steadfast heart. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and faith, and the and the, a great many people were added to the Lord, and we see there um, that uh, it's here in Antioch where the disciples were first called Christians. We get our our name today um, from those who were in Antioch, and they stayed there uh, for just around a year. But what we see here is that. Uh, conversion, altar calls, baptism, salvations, it's not the end of the work of the church. Um, these people were being saved. A great many people were being saved. And the church sent Barnabas up there 
to develop and to culture, um, to till the soil, to continue to work on the Christians who were there. And one thing that is really unique is we define discipleship a lot of ways, um, right? Our, our working definition for discipleship is helping each other follow Jesus in all of life through the gospel. Um, but what does that look like? I actually think that uh, Barnabas gives us three really easily attainable things as to what discipleship looks like. What did Barnabas do to help grow and disciple the church in Antioch? Well, I see three things. Um, he saw the grace of God and he was glad. The first thing we do as disciples is we give glory to God wherever we see his grace in the life of those who are around us. We praise God for just the small fragments of grace we see. Um, if we're going to be overwhelmed by the great things, we need to learn to appreciate the small things because the truth is um, what preceded uh, Barnabas getting to Antioch was not the work of men, was it? It was the promise of God coming to rest on Gentiles through the proclaimed word of the gospel. It was a miracle. So the moment he gets there, he doesn't look at this group and say, we got a lot of work to do. He sees the grace of faith and he is glad. Discipleship starts with gratitude to God for the work he's done in the life of that individual. But then secondly, um, he encourages them to action, right? He exhorted all of them to remain faithful to the Lord. And what he's doing there is he's he's actually pushing them in holiness. He is, he is calling them to maintain their conduct, to be faithful in all of life. And so this is where he's encouraging them to keep going to church, to keep praying, to keep putting off sin. Discipleship encourages us to remain faithful. But, and this is the third point um, here, and so he rejoices, he encourages to action, but he does all of this without neglecting godly affection, right? So the ESV says he encouraged them to remain faithful to the Lord, with steadfast purpose. Um, other translations, I didn't have time to look in the Greek if it is cardia or not, um, but it says, uh, encourage them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast heart. And so in discipleship, yes, we are rejoicing about what God is doing. Yes, we are calling them to act in line with their conversion or to do what Jesus says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But we do all of this not because we have some social construct we want to maintain in discipleship, but we encourage them to do all of this with a steadfast heart. All of our actions, all of our um, sacrifices, all of our generosity, all of our mission happens because God has changed our hearts. God has done a wonderful work in our hearts. Discipleship stirs the affection of God and everything else follows it. And so I just thought that was unique, kind of three things that um, Barnabas did to disciple. He rejoiced at God's grace, he encouraged the church to action, and he stirred their affection to what God was already doing in their life so that they might have a steadfast heart. And then last, so we see evangelism, we see discipleship, and lastly, we see generosity, right? So here's the wonder is the church in Jerusalem is not really going to know what to do with these uh Gentile converts in Antioch, but this man named Agabus comes down and he hears, uh, he receives this prophecy that there's going to be a famine in Jerusalem. And what do the saints in Antioch do? Uh, we see this in verse uh, 29. So the disciples, that's the disciples in Antioch, determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. 
And so the church is sharing the gospel. The church is being discipled in the gospel. And the church is growing in generosity. These uh, Gentile Christians have not um, met most of the people in Judea, but they have been encouraged by Barnabas who came from Judea and they are united in faith out of their surplus to give to those who are in Judea. And so I just think that's something unique um, when it comes to us. And this isn't just, Christians shouldn't just think about what we do with our offerings to our local church. Christians should think about what we do with our money to encourage the broader church. Why? Because generosity is a natural implication of what the gospel bears in our own hearts. So uh, looking in, we see setting, the setting aside of time to pray. We see these three priorities of the church in evangelism, discipleship, and generosity. And in looking out, how does this change the way we live? Well, I, see, uh, I saw two things in here. One was a heart thing um, that stood out to me. And the other is, is perhaps something practical, which is what we want to do in looking out. Um, the thing that stood out to me in terms of my affection and my understanding of those three categories of evangelism, discipleship, and generosity uh, came in chapter 10 verses, or uh, chapter 11, verses 15 through 17. Uh, Peter says this, he's, he's describing what's happened with the Gentiles. He says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles, just as on us at the beginning. And so he's talking about, you know, Acts chapter two. And I remembered the word of the Lord and how he said, John baptized with water but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And what the, the, the Christian Standard Bible read, which or said, which I read this morning is, uh, how could I possibly hinder God? And so here we see Peter is experiencing miraculous salvation. He's seeing the promises of God come to rest. And his thought is, uh, how can I stop this? How could I hinder this? Uh, and I think for me, like that promise, that promise of the gospel bearing fruit in the lives of those around us is the same promise we have today. How could I hinder that? How could I not act with such optimism that God's word will save souls? How could I think that salvation is something, um, that, uh, you know, the right situation, the right context will contribute to. And maybe if I don't have those right now, I don't need to, I don't need to be faithful in my efforts to evangelism. But here Peter sees all of this. He says, how could I hinder what's going on? How could I not believe that the gospel is going to bear fruit? How could I not see the promise of God is for me and for my neighbor and for my coworker? And so I think for us, when we see this text and we see God's promise to the nations, we should with sobriety ask ourselves, do we side with Peter and say, how could I hinder this? And the truth is you can't. Uh, if you are faithful to follow God, we get to actually join in with God's cause to bring salvation to our city, to our neighbors, and to the nation because God is going to do it. We can't hinder it. We are too, uh, we, we serve too big a God for God's work to be hindered by our poor efforts in evangelism um, or by our lack of knowing how to answer the questions of skeptics. God just wants us to be faithful and he will do the rest. And so this led to something that I thought was really practical. Um, look at chapter 11 verse, uh, or actually chapter 10 verse 24. Uh, so this is... Uh, Back in Caesarea, in Cornelius's house, it says this. On the following day, they entered Caesarea, and Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and his close friends. 
And uh, then he says this at the end of uh, this passage in verse 33. Cornelius says, you know, with his relatives and his close friends, see, I have sent for you, Peter, at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And so we don't know. Luke doesn't tell us if these close friends and relatives of Cornelius were God-fearers like him or were not. But the point is not lost on us that perhaps we should do this too. Um, whether it's for evangelism uh, and hoping that when we call them to church, when we invite them to community group, when we call them over to our home, that we might say, uh, we're all here to hear all that has been commanded by the Lord. And what Peter had been commanded was the gospel, to preach the gospel. Um, and we see that as Peter um, gives his speech afterwards. They're commanded to proclaim the gospel of God. Um, or when it comes to discipleship, of calling in our relatives and our close friends to hear what again? Everything commanded by the Lord, right? And that gets back to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, um, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And so here, like, we can be so um, strategic and uh, rigid when thinking through discipleship and evangelism. We kind of make game plans. Uh, but here, what did Cornelius do? He just grabbed those people who are nearest to him, who he had relationship with. He invited them into his home where he knew they were going to hear the gospel. And I think for us, when we see the growth of God's church here, um, we might say, where can we do this with our friends? And what, what does it say? Our, our relatives and our close friends people whom we already have relationship with, what does it look like to invite them to places where they will either hear the gospel for the first time or be encouraged to obey the gospel as a continuing act of discipleship? Um, because the truth is, uh, you could have the most devout Christian, you could have the, all of our elders in your community group, and we need help following the gospel more and more. We need to be encouraged by what Cornelius' friends were encouraged. More than that, we all know people who profess to be Christian in our lives, who, who also perhaps don't even go to church, don't read their Bible. But what does it look like to invite them to church with you? What does it look like to invite them to join you in your morning devotions? What does it look like to invite them to your community group, to be surrounded by other believers who encourage us and help us serve our city? Or more importantly, what does it look like? I love it. This weekend, um, one of our members invited like three groups of people to come to church with her. And I don't think any of them are Christian, but they came because they were her close friend and they came to a place where she brought them to church and she has been faithfully sharing the gospel with them and inviting them to church but they came to a place where it was like now therefore we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that has been commanded to us and because we see God's promise to bring about salvation we should be encouraged that the more we are calling others um, to hear this message in community the more God is going to bear fruit and so this week, what does it look like for you to invite those who are around you into a position where they too can hear the wonderful good news of God's salvation to the lost? The wonderful good news um, that all who uh, that to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That is the joy of the church, and that sums up the mission of the church of evangelism, discipleship, and generosity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We pray that the same Holy Spirit which uh, filled this church and empowered them for mission uh, would do wonderful things in our time today. And we thank you that he is. Lord, we pray that we might stand back and see your work in Missoula or wherever we are, and we might say, how could I hinder a God so great as this? Lord, I pray that you give us grace and fruit in calling our 
relatives and close friends to hear the message of God for them so that we might um, either see them converted or see them grow as we grow alongside of them in following you. We pray all this in your name. Amen.